Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode uh, of the Alliance Against Exclusion and Restraints uh, lecture series. Um, really excited to have you here today. We've got a great uh, speaker today that will be with us. Uh, but before I get started, I'll just let you know a little bit about who I am and, and where, uh, where I'm coming from. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Exclusion and Restraint. Uh, we are an organization that is trying to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation and advocating for change. We want to see a change because we believe we can do better. And if we can do better, we should do better. So today I'm very excited to have uh, Robin Ro uh, Rosigno with us, and uh, we're going to be introducing her in just a moment. Uh, but this workshop is really intended to help parents and teachers and others uh, during these challenging times and even beyond that uh, as they're getting back to school. I do wanna let you know that we'll be taking questions today at the end of the presentation. So hold your questions till the end, but we will have plenty of time allotted for questions. Also, uh, this will be um, recorded and it's going to be made available on Facebook, YouTube, and also as an audio podcast that you can download and listen to. So before, I uh, before we introduce our guest for the day, uh, I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Beth Tolley. Uh, hi, Beth. Um, Hello. Beth is our Director of Educational Strategy here at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, Beth retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency for interventions of infra for infants and toddlers. Uh, she has experience as a parent and a grandparent of children who have had behavioral challenges, which has fueled really her passion to improve the lives of children's, children and families through education, mutual support, and advocacy. And I'm sure you've probably uh, hopefully seen some of uh, her writing. She is an amazing person, and we are really excited to have her as part of the Alliance team. Hey, Beth. Hey, thank you. That was very nice. <laughs> well, thank, uh, thank you as always. <laughs> well, I am delighted to introduce Robin Rosigno. He's a scholar and a practitioner specializing in education for neurodivergent children. She is a PhD candidate at Rutgers University Graduate School of Education, and she consults with school districts and parents on a range of topics. Most recently, Robin was awarded the Irvin K. Zola Award for Emerging Scholars in Disability Studies from the Society for Disability Studies for her article, Semiotic Stalemate, Resisting Restraint and Seclusion Through Guattari's Micropolitics of Desire. This combined her scholarly interests with her anti-restraint and seclusion activism. I'm very impressed <laughs> and very excited um, to welcome Robin today. Absolutely, and welcome Robin. We, we are absolutely thrilled to have you here today. Uh, I know it was several months ago I got a chance to, to uh, talk with you and, and learn about the work that you're doing uh, there in New Jersey. Uh, in relation to restraint and seclusion, all the amazing things you've been doing. And I continue to be amazed by all the things that I see from you, including your your new TikTok uh, uh, account that you're doing and, and all the educational things that you're doing. So we're really excited to have you here and, and probably have about, based on our conversation today, 10 more topics we'd like to have you back for. <laughs> oh, awesome. Can you, so uh, I'm- I'm gonna go ahead and bring up your uh, your presentation okay. here and we will let you take it away. We're really excited, thank you. Awesome, thank you so much, Guy. Thank you also, uh, Beth, uh, for the lovely introduction. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so what I wanted to do today is um, go through kind of one of the things that I see when I go into schools a lot that are causing kind of behavioral struggle. Um, it's usually tied to an unmet need, which we, you know, some of the previous presenters are, you know, 
the, the experts in that. Um, but one of the unmet needs that I see quite a bit um, actually is executive functioning uh, support. Um, and so a lot of times I'll go in to observe a student um, and they're struggling so much with executive functioning um, and there really isn't a lot in place uh, for them um, other than, you know, kind of like incentives to do better, but the, they're maybe not understanding exactly how to help um, someone support their executive functioning. Um, so I'm gonna uh, begin by kind of explaining what executive functioning is, what are our core executive functions, and then um, I have a lot of really practical, actionable uh, strategies that people can put into place. Um, I like to do uh, my trainings where everyone leaves with something they can do tomorrow. So that's really what I'm aiming for. Um, so hopefully uh, I, I have accomplished that by the end. You will be the judge of that. <laughs> um, so who am I? Uh, I am a former special education teacher. I started my career in New York City's District 75, um, which is their non-geographic district for students with, uh, you know, quote, moderate to severe disabilities. Um, I now am uh, working on my, my doctorate and I work as an educational consultant. Um, I work either with families uh, directly or sometimes with school districts to help improve their inclusive education programming. Um, I'm the co-founder of New Jersey Neurodiversity, which is a, a Facebook page and a group where we do um, outreach and education, and we also do assemblies um, for school districts. Um, I'm a researcher and a teacher, um, and I also um, you know, consider myself an activist against restraint and seclusion. Um, I'm in New Jersey, and I do a lot of trainings uh, about that for teachers. Um, so those are, are kind of my, um, you know, how I'm coming to this work. Um, so what is executive functioning? Uh, those are our skills that help us achieve goals. So any goal-directed behavior that we have, um, how we get there has a lot to do with our executive functioning. Um, they allow individuals to effectively and efficiently plan, organize, execute a thought or behavior. Um, it's that you know initiation and the follow-through, um, often related to the process of problem-solving. Executive function are skills are most responsible for regulating actions, emotions, and cognitive processes. Um, so everything that we plan to do, uh, all the steps that we take, that has to do with our executive functioning. Um, and there are some types of disabilities that may present as a kind of, um, you know, as ha having need in that area, um, needing support to be successful. There's really three domains um, of executive functioning. So there's your kind of cognitive skills, uh, behavioral skills, and emotional skills that all contribute to how we achieve our goals. Um, so I'm gonna go through the first one, which is the cognitive domain. This is probably the one that most people are familiar with. Um, so that's uh, skills like planning, your working memory, your attention, initiation, organization, and how you monitor yourself, your progress as you're going through. Um, so your planning really is your is an individual's ability to set a goal. Um, and the goal may be set by the individual or uh, it may be given to you, right? So in school, there's a goal. Um, you don't always get to choose your own goals, right? Um, and to appropriately assign a set of steps that must be taken to complete it. Um, this is often a big struggle for students where they know they have to do something. Um, they know they need to start it, but the steps that they need to take uh, to go from, from A to Z are, um, you know, either hard to figure out 
or overwhelming to even start that process. Um, I know I teach college students and they uh, oftentimes coming from high school where sometimes, you know, teachers will offer a lot of support and checks along the way. Um, you know, when students have to start figuring out how to undertake a large project, uh, how to break it down, what steps to take um, on their own, it can be really difficult. Um, your working memory is your ability to hold or manipulate information in your short-term memory for a brief period of time. Um, so there's kind of two main types of working memory, um, your auditory and your visual working memory, um, and they're each related to a kind of distinct set of skills. Um, your auditory working memory allows you to hear information, such as a phone number, um, and to remember the information for a short period of time. Um, and uh, the a visual working memory is your ability to hold visual information in the short-term memory storage. Um, so a street sign, um, something on a TV screen that you saw, um, you know, uh, also where you put things. Um, so you may place something down and look and say, oh, it's there. Um, and then remember that you did that and then go back to that spot. Um, but if your working memory is, um, you know, an area of challenge for you, you may not be able to hold that information for a really long time. Um, then is your attention. Um, so we see this a lot, you know, obviously with our ADHD kids, um, students um, on the autism spectrum, it's your it's an individual's ability to remain focused on a task for a given period of time. Um, there's two really types of attention. There is your sustained attention and your selective attention. Sustained attention is your ability to stay on task without mundane or kind of boring tasks. Um, for a specified period of time, and your selective attention allows an individual to remain focused on a task amid various distractions. Um, so oftentimes our ADHD kids, we tend to think they have uh, no attention, um, but they have very much a lot of selective attention and not so much that sustained attention. Um, I would definitely put myself in that category. Um, I have all of the attention, too much attention maybe even, um, for the things that I enjoy doing, um, and then not a lot of attention for uh, to persevere through tasks that I find to be mundane or boring. Um, and so uh, oftentimes ADHD presents as a, an imbalance um, more towards that sustained attention. Um, and we're going to talk later about how I plan for that and how I help kids to actually plan for that. Next is your initiation. That is a, a skill in which that you can start a task without prompting or without direction from environmental influences. In other words, it's your kind of intrinsic motivation to, to begin a task. Um, so it's that feeling of I need to do laundry and then getting up and doing laundry. Um, Getting started on a task um, oftentimes is very difficult uh, for students, um, and that is something that, you know, we're going to talk about ways to help um, build that into the environment as a support. Um, your organization is how you prioritize and pace the steps required for a specific goal. Um, they also require, organization also requires you to gather all of the supplies that you need to do a specific task um, and to maintain, you know, um, a, a sense of where everything is in space. Um, and then lastly is your monitoring, which is your ability to supervise or provide oversight um, 
as you're going along your plan to ensure that it's being implemented. Um, so that's kind of um, sense of uh, this plan is not going well, we need to go a different way, or, um, you know, uh, this plan is going faster than I expected, slower than I expected. Your ability to self-monitor your work um, is also an executive functioning or, or executive function uh, rooted very much in your um, metacognition. So the second domain is what uh, you know scholars call the behavioral domain. It refers to your ability to appropriately adjust your behavior according to the environment. Um, and there's two main skills kind of in this domain, inhibition and your self-monitoring. Um, your inhibition is the ability of a person to delay a response. In other words, it's a skill in which an individual thinks before acting. Um, inhibition can be uh, complex um, where you may uh, inhibit, you know, your behavior now um, to get something um, you know, better in the future. I may say no to being invited to a party so I can study because I'm envisioning being a doctor. Um, that is a complex skill um, that comes obviously with age and maturity. Um, and a lot of our kids struggle with, um, you know, outweighing uh, the short term benefit um, to the long term, right? Why, why would I not do this thing I want to do now um, because of the thing I want to do in the future that I want more, perhaps? Um, that is a actual executive functioning skill to be able to do that. Um, also is your self-monitoring. Um, so it's similar to your cognitive monitoring. Um, it allows you to review your actions to how well they are suited to the environment. Um, so matching your you know, the volume of your voice to other people's uh, volumes of their voice or matching um, kind of that like social skills um, of, uh, you know, this is the kind of group norms in this place that I am and the thing I'm doing is not working the way I want it to do. So I'm going to do something different. Um, that is a executive functioning skill. And then lastly is this kind of emotional domain. It's defined a lot of different ways. Um, I put five different skills that I think um, really encapsulate the, the main crux of, um, you know, what I see kids struggling with in schools. Um, so the first would be um, the ability to recognize emotions in yourself and others. Um, so, you know, how am I feeling? How are other people feeling? Um, that can be very difficult for kids. Some kids don't know actually how they're feeling um, for a variety of different reasons. And it can be, you know, difficulty with interoception, um, not having, you know, adequate or, you know, um, sufficient uh, communication system to, to relay that to others um, or not having enough vocabulary. Um, and then also, you know, the added difficulty of figuring out what other people are thinking. Um, matching your emotional response to the situation. Um, so we all have had experience with kids, right, where they, um, you know, stub their toe and it's like the end of the world. Um, or, you know, they're, the, the flip side of that is not, not enough reaction. Um, something happens that would generally garner a pretty strong reaction um, and the response is, um, you know, not as strong as you would expect. Persisting through negative emotions um, is very difficult um, for most people, including, um, you know, especially children. Um, 
I don't like doing this math, um, but I have to do it. Um, and I have to do it even though I'm mad about having to do it is in fact an executive function. Um, being able to soothe yourself, being able to calm yourself down, um, to control your response to things through caring for yourself um, is something, you know, we're all always trying to get better at. Um, but we need to think about it in this term uh, is that this is not something that, um, you know, children have a well-developed sense of, and they need to be explicitly taught this. Um, and then also kind of flexible thinking and perspective taking, um, you know, those kind of like reciprocity skills. So um, there's a lot of different ideas about how these work together, if they work together, um, if they are indeed distinct or uh, if they develop in tandem with one another, um, there is not a consensus really um, in this, the literature. Um, so uh, as I was preparing for this, I did a lot of research in terms of, you know, what is the scientific consensus about how this develops? Is it developmental? Um, and if so, like, what is that mechanism? Which things develop first? Which things develop afterwards? Um, and there are kind of conflicting theories. Some people you know, uh, scholars have argued that executive functioning is a single process that underlies all of these activities. Um, so it's a singular kind of thing that happens that allows for all of these domains to develop. Um, and then other people argue that these entities are distinct from one another, um, meaning that, you know, your emotional regulation develops, um, you know, separately from your organization or working memory. They are in fact distinct from one another. Um, one of the kind of prominent theoretical frameworks brings these two together by suggesting that executive functioning consists of interrelated, um, so they are related, but they are also distinct components. Um, and this is described as uh, the unity and diversity of executive functioning. Um, so these things do have a relationship, um, and but that relationship does not mean that these things are also not their own kind of distinct skill, um, which I think is a helpful way to think about it. Um, scholars have also demonstrated that some executive functionings, like inhibition, um, show most of their growth as children are uh, younger in their pre-K years, and others, like the ability to shift your attention, um, develop over the course of a child's life and even into the adult life. Um, so there are kind of these charts of when these things typically are, you know, quote unquote, mastered. Um, and we know that kids who are neurodivergent are not going to follow that typical trajectory anyway, um, and may have, you know, maybe lifelong um, executive functioning challenges, or that that kind of curve upward may be over, you know, a lot more years. Um, so where we might expect that inhibition is developed in a five-year-old, um, it may take, you know, a neurodivergent, um, person longer to develop, uh, you know, that executive function. Um, and it may not, you know, be developed in the same way. So I'm going to uh, kind of ground what my approach is um, here so that it's really clear um, what exactly I'm talking about when I'm talking about um, an intervention. Um, so really, my approach is rooted in what scholars call the social model of disability. This is in contrast to what um, is typically called the medical model of disability, 
within the medical model of disability, disability is seen as a um, deficit, right? It's almost like you go to the doctor, they diagnose you and they prescribe a treatment. Um, and typically that's how we see disability. Um, that's how disability is, you know, understood in the IEP process, uh, in special education, there's a problem, there's an intervention, and then, you know, the problem is fixed. Um, I tend to approach things differently uh, as do most kind of activists or people who are have a disability studies orientation to this work of thinking about maybe the problem is not the individual, but the problem is the environment, right? Um, so, you know, if you are a wheelchair user um, and everywhere you go has stairs, you're going to be much more limited and experience using a wheelchair is more disabling than if you everywhere you go is accessible to you. Um, and so it's that friction between the individual and the society that's not set up for that individual that actually creates a lot of um, you know, experiences, negative experiences for disabled people um, and can add to that frustration, um, particularly in children who don't have a vocabulary to talk about their experiences. Um, so in my approach, I don't necessarily focus on, you know, fixing uh, the individual. Um, I focus on the environment. How can I build environments for kids that they can be successful in? Um, and that, that mindset shift is actually... Um, I think the key to a kind of like a kid centered pedagogy um, and it's going to help with relational security between teachers and students. If we can, you know, show them that we understand the way that they think and that we want to help them. Um, so a lot of executive functioning strategies um, kind of the solution actually is just an iteration of the problem. Um, so an example would be kids with ADHD have trouble sticking to a schedule. So it's important to always have a schedule. Um, and I, I get a lot of, there's a lot of advice like that, or um, like kids, <laughs> kids um, who always forget their materials. So it's important that they remember to pull out the checklist that I made from them out of their box. Um, so the, the solution to forgetting is to remember. Um, but if they could remember, then we wouldn't need the solution. And so it just becomes this kind of, um, you know, I put a system in place and then the system doesn't get used. Um, and then it's treated as if it's, you know, non-compliance or it's like a behavioral kind of rejection of the solution. Um, but the problem is, is that the solution never was a solution. It was just another uh, thing to remember. <laughs> if we could remember that, then we wouldn't need the solution. Um, so uh, I think you'll see that some of this, uh, I have uh, six strategies I'm going to share today. I think you'll see that they're very much about, um, you know, moving with kids, right? Um, you want to be that palm tree. The wind blows and the palm tree bends with it um, as opposed to, you know, a, I don't know what other kind of tree, like, you know, a tree that would snap, that's rigid. Um, so we want to be flexible. That's the idea. So this is what this strategy I call schedule matching. Um, I do this a lot with kids. Um, so I'm going to explain the strategy and then I'll show some examples. Um, so this strategy is really about matching that emotional domain with the cognitive domain, combining them um, to have the best effect. 
Um, so what you do is you begin by writing out the day's tasks on index cards. You can do it like there's high tech ways to do it. You could use an app. You could, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm old school. So I'm <laughs> doing index cards. Um, you can take real pictures uh, for non-readers. Um, so if, if, if it's do the workbook, you take a picture of the workbook. Uh, if it's go see grandma, you take a picture of grandma. Um, real pictures are always going to work better. Um, I think even than than Mayor Johnson symbols. Um, I don't know if any of you are have seen them, but they are very confusing. I think um, so. Make sure to also include you know fun and relaxing activities that you're going to do throughout the day. Uh, this is a great strategy for homeschooling because I know that a lot of people are having a lot of friction with homeschooling, um, myself included. Um, and this has been really helpful um, to us. So you're going to work with your child then to rate the items, um, how hard they are, um, how much they like them, how much they don't like them. You can do it in various forms. So um, kids that understand like numerical ranking, uh, you could do it that way. You could do frowny face, you could do colors. Um, you could use like an AAC device to rank them. You just want to get a sense of how your child feels about these things. Um, and then you want to rate how they feel today. Um, and that can change, right? Our days are very different, how we wake up feeling, um, especially now because a lot of people's sleep is disrupted. I get a vastly different kind of physical experiences of, of being in the world from day to day. Um, so you want to kind of figure out where they're holding. Are they tired, hungry, feeling great, um, maybe overstimulated, maybe understimulated? Um, so we want to get a sense of how we feel about the work we have to do and how we feel right now. Then we can use that to decide the order of the task for the day. And you're going to involve your child in this. I've talked through this with them. Um, so here are some options. Um, you could organize from difficult to easy with the fun things at the very end. That's a great thing to do if, um, you know, you're in a good mood. You wake up feeling good. So you're ready to go. You might want to do. That's how I mostly organize my days. Is I do my hardest things first um, and then, you know, go from hardest to easiest. You could also go from easy to difficult. Maybe you have a kid that's really hard to get them in the swing of things, right? You don't want to just come out of the gate swinging with the math workbook. Maybe you want to build up to it. And then by the end, they'll build up a little bit of inertia, right? And then uh, maybe be kind of in that zone. Um, you can also alternate. Uh, this works really well with kids with, uh, you know, kind of attention issues. Uh, so you can alternate from hard to easy, hard, easy. Um, or you could do mini schedules, mini versions of these for the morning and the afternoon. Um, so I'll show you what that would look like. So the first one, I color coded them red uh, to green, green like I love it, red I don't like it. Um, so the first one would be like a hard to easy schedule. Um, so first we're going to do our math worksheet, then we're going to go on IXL, then we'll do the reading journal, then we're going to write a paragraph, then Raz Kids, then YouTube, then play outside. Right? But all I know, you know, some kids this works really well for. It's almost like its own built-in first then. Um, the thing is, though, this is not um, a first then in the sense that, like, you're going to take away the YouTube and the play outside if the other things don't go well. This is just a schedule. Um, it's not a, um, like, reward chart. So it's important that if you're going to do this, you don't make it about, um, you know, that you have to earn those two things. They're, they're happening regardless. You're just doing the order. Um, the next would be a start like uh, an easy to hard schedule. So you do the fun things first um, and then, you know, go through, you say, okay, now we got, we had so much fun, you know, our, our bodies feel regulated. Now we can get into doing the work. 
Um, the next would be a kind of alternating, so math, IXL, uh, oh no, this is, yeah, this would be like alternating, then YouTube, reading journal, res, kids play outside. Um, and then the last one would be like kind of almost like a roller coaster <laughs> of like fun to hard, then back to the fun, um, which is kind of a combo of that easy hard. So you're gonna start easy and then go up to hard, the, but then end easy. Um, it's, and you can do this with anything. Um, I do like a similar kind of thing with, when I run intervals on the treadmill. Um, some days, <laughs> some days I want to like sprint and then go down to a jog. Some days I want to um, work up to a sprint. Um, some days I want to go back and forth, and some days I want to do like a hill. You know, um, that is what how you're going to plan your day. But the important thing is to be intentional about how you plan it. Um, and have kids know why they picked the order that they did. Um, this kind of makes that invisible uh, uh, ideas of planning visible. How do people pick what they do, what order they're gonna do them? Um, this is really helpful to them. So the next one um, is what I'm calling an organizational mind map. Um, so uh, this one is less, you know, technical, um, but people with executive functioning struggles often have trouble keeping organized. Um, and one of the problems that I see is that we try and make those people then fit with the system. So we're saying, okay, well, we'll just put a bin in your closet. You'll put your shoes in, um, you know, and then you won't leave them downstairs. Uh, the problem is not that that's, you know, for a neurotypical child, um, you know, that generally works okay. Um, but if the problem is actually the bringing of the shoes upstairs, um, I often suggest to put bins where you find you naturally leave those things. Um, then you're kind of solving two things. One, it's organized, but two, if you naturally come in and plop your book bag right by the door and mom's always yelling at you, go put it in the closet because I have a hook in the closet. Um, the problem is, is that the executive functioning to get from here to the closet uh, is too much. So we're going to make it easy. We'll put a, a hook by the door. Um, if you always drop it here, we're going to put it literally right here. Um, so that way it's organized, um, but it's uh, it's also, you know, working with the way that people naturally operate. Um, so you can start by making a map of your home or your desk um, where things accumulate. We have certain spots in my house that tend to attract piles. Um, and so we create systems where those piles pile up. Um, that's where you need the system at that actual location. Don't promise yourself that tomorrow you'll be better and you'll always put your keys, you know, X place, put a place to put your keys where you put your keys um, and create space for those things where you use them. Um, not where you want to keep them, but where you actually use them. Um, everything you want to use uh, should be within arm's reach. Um, and then sometimes, you know, there are things that occasionally you have, they need to end up somewhere else. Um, I pick kind of one day a week that we reset all the systems. So I have a basket. We throw everything that like is downstairs that needs to go upstairs. And one day a week I bring it up. Um, so it's really about working with your brain. So this is a picture of my house. Um, this is my office, um, that has a couch in it, um, but I also fold laundry in here and uh, I just found that I was like having extra socks in that little corner because I was like find socks and not want to match them. Um, and so now I just have a bin. That's where I put the socks. Um, so it's out of sight. 
um, but it's also not just a pile of rogue socks. Um, and it's in the office and that's probably not where I should keep the socks, but that's where the socks end up. So that's where I put the bin. Um, this one also, um, we have at my house upstairs toys and downstairs toys. Um, so I have bins of toys uh, that my daughter can take out and use on the table in the living room that are, you know, within reach for her so that she is not bringing toys from downstairs up and from upstairs down. Um, the same thing goes for, for school. Um, if you, you know, want someone to find something, um, it needs to be, you know, where they, so let's say you're going to set up a station where students have to go get worksheets. Uh, it's better to have the pencils and everything you need to do the worksheet there than to ask kids um, to go three different places in the classroom to get everything they need. Um, you know, because your, your kids who have struggling, you know, with one step directions are definitely not going to get all of the things. And then you're going to find, um, you know, them getting lost on the way back from the coat closet, that kind of stuff. And if anyone that has been a teacher of little kids, you know, that it is very possible for a little kid to get lost coming back from the coat closet. Um, that confused look of like, I'm doing something. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know there's a lot of things I'm supposed to be getting. Can't find them. Um, you want them all uh, where where they would naturally go to get it. Um, so my next strategy is something, you know, I just like call it supply sets. Um, but one of the problems with getting started with a task, and oftentimes, uh, you know, if you have executive functioning issues, um, it may, the actual executive functioning that goes into getting all the things to start is what's preventing people from starting. Um, so let's say, you know, uh, this happens to me a lot actually, where, um, you know, I want to like garden or something, but I know that like, um, you know, the gardening gloves are in the wash from the last time I used them and the shovels in the back of the house. And, uh, I have to go get a plant out of my car and then I'm just like, forget it too much. Um, so we try and keep like things together. And sometimes that means you have to have more than one. Um, because, uh, you want at least those items in reach when you want to go do that thing. Um, I use a lot of bins and, um, large Ziplocs. Um, so if I'm going to do, you know, paint by numbers or, or something, I have all of the paints, um, and the paint brushes and a cup, everything is ready to go in that thing. Um, and I do that when I'm, you know, hyper-focused one day. Um, but you want to create, think of everything almost like a kit. Um, you know, like you order a kit to do like needlepoint and it comes with all the things to do the needlepoint. Um, start making your own kits in your house. Um, so you may have to have one more, one, one or more pairs of scissors, glue, crayons. Um, but then when you go to do that thing, it's all there for you. So this is a, um, a bin um, I made for my daughter. Um, it's her math workbook and the math workbook is kindergarten. So she often has to do like stuff with cutting and glue and paper. Um, so everything to do anything in that workbook is also in the bin. Um, so when we go to do math homework, we're not like, where's a pencil? Where's, um, you know, oh, I need a crayon. I got to go upstairs to get the crayon. It's all there. Um, that's what you want to do. You can even staple a sandwich bag to the workbook and keep the things in it. Um, so that when you go to do it, it's all there. Um, if you're a college student, you can get one of those little, you know, punch in, you know, the, the three hole like pencil boxes, but have one for every binder. 
Um, so that way you're not like, oh, I got to get the pencil box. It's in my car. All right, forget it. YouTube, um, <laughs> which is, um, you know, what happens. Okay. So the next one, um, I call a transition buffer. Um, so one of the things that's very difficult for kids with executive functioning issues and kids in general um, is transitioning or shift, shifting your attention from one thing to another thing. Um, and the typical kind of teacher strategy is set a timer. Um, the problem with that is that we just delay, you know, we just make the crying earlier. So typically we're saying, oh, we're gonna set a timer um, and we'll give them a warning and then they cry at the warning as, as opposed to when they have to do it. Um, but you know, it's still, it's still that, that it's abrupt, right? It doesn't really make the transition that much smoother. I very seldom see a timer actually making things much better. Um, and in my, you know, the way that I understand this is a lot of this has to do with kind of attentional inertia, I guess. Um, so, you know, especially, you know, your ADHD kids who may have that kind of like preferred attention uh, versus that sustained attention, um, we're oftentimes being asked to shift types of attention very quickly. Stop doing the thing that you love and do a thing you don't. <laughs> um, and so obviously that's going to be a kind of um, difficult transition. Um, you know, you ever like really into like reading and then, you know, your partner comes and tries to have a conversation with you and you're like, I'm reading, like, why are you talking to me? Um, so what I kind of, the way I like to think about it is, okay, so say your, your child's playing video games and you want them to stop to get in the car to go to family outing, right? Those are two very different things. Playing video games is a completely different set of skills and attention than going to a family outing, totally different. Um, I like to kind of um, build in like a little buffer um, where the middle thing has components of the, of the starting and the ending. Um, so here's an example. Um, so instead of playing video games from with going directly into the family outing, maybe, um, you say stop playing video games, but you can stay on your iPad and like, I'll text you about what we're going to do at the family outing for 10 minutes. Right? You're just building in a little bit of a buffer that has components of the thing they're going to, but also components of the thing they're coming from. Um, and you can do this with, um, so let's say you're going to go from, you know, kids often have a hard time going from, um, you know, iPad time to like schoolwork time. Um, but they have something they can do on the iPad that is schoolwork. So you could say, first, you could do YouTube. Then you have to do RAS Kids, which is schoolwork on an iPad, um, and then you're transitioning into that schoolwork. So it's more of a smooth transition um, from the type of thinking that you're doing. Um, it can be very abrupt to change from one um, to another very dramatically. Um, so this fifth one, um, I have called it functional pairs. <laughs> So uh, oftentimes uh, for people with executive functioning uh, challenges, it can be stressful, stressful to find multiple items in multiple places. Um, so, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit, but, you know, the pencil's here, this is there. Uh, and then it's kind of that, like, forgot it, it's too much work. Um, you know, thinking where all the things are can be a task in and of itself. Um, and so to minimize um, 
you know, the amount of stress that that can be and also to build in some environmental cues. Remember, we're using that environment to help support um, is to pair things together that you need one to do the other. So, um, you know, people say to do this um, a lot, but I think sometimes they say, you know, put your pills on the counter so you remember to take them. Um, but it's very easy to ignore them on the counter because they eventually become part of the scenery. Um, I think you have to be a little bit more obstructive than that. Um, so, um, you know, some suggestions would be uh, put your medicine in the refrigerator in front of the milk or on the coffee maker where you're going to make the coffee. Like you physically have to touch it uh, to move it out of the way. Um, not just see it because that's not enough, right? But if it's literally in your way, um, then you'll remember to do both of those things. Pair a thing you'll forget with a thing you'll always remember. I will always remember coffee and therefore I always put my medication in the coffee maker <laughs> um, so that I have to actually physically touch it um, to move it to put the to make the coffee. Um, put your shoes for school inside of your backpack. Um, it sounds silly, um, but if you, you know, and you can do this for your child, so they can't remember this, but they always wear the same pair of shoes, stick them in the backpack, then they won't forget the backpack because they'll have to open the backpack to get the shoes. Um, put your homework inside of your coat sleeve. Uh, you're gonna take your coat to go home, it's cold. You're probably not gonna forget that because if you do, you go outside and be cold and say, I don't have a coat on. Um, and if you slip the homework in it, you'll remember to take it out and it's, it's already there. Um, or um, put your laundry where you sit every night to watch TV. So you have to actually move it um, to sit where you wanna sit, it's in your way. Um, so you kind of use the thing that you love <laughs> to be that environmental cue for the thing that you probably would forget or would sink to the background uh, if it wasn't like immediately pushed into your face. Um, and then the last strategy um, I want to talk about is um, I call it power scheduling. Um, so it's almost like, you know, we talked about the different types of attention, sustained attention um, versus that type of like dynamic attention where we're doing something we really love. Um, and neurodivergent people often have a lot of the latter and not so much of the former, um, which is why you can see, you know, um, you can remember every single, you know, anything about Doctor Who, um, but, don't, you know, you don't know where your shoes are. Um, my husband says all the time, I'm like, you know, uh, he says, you're like, you're like a genius, but like, you don't know where anything is. And I'm like, well, I know, because <laughs> um, I don't uh, care about those things that much. And I, the things I care about, I really care about. And I like, you know, get so hyper-focused into them. Um, the thing is, though, is that those periods of hyper-focus are often extremely unreliable. Um, you cannot turn it on. Um, when people are in that state of like that hyper-focus, they can get so much done. Um, but uh, you don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> it can be, uh, you know, it surprises you sometimes. Um, so one of the strategies that you can do is that um, you can uh, create a list um, that is accessible in a, you know, it could be a post-it on your computer. It could be, um, you know, somewhere where you compile all of the tasks that you cannot do unless you are hyper-focused. Um, so you, you know, write them all down or maybe you start it and you couldn't finish it, but you know you want to come back to it. Um, 
but uh, you know you can do it if you are in the zone. Um, and all my ADHDers, you know what I'm talking about with the zone. You get in the zone and it's like you work for 12 hours and then not again for like a month. Um, but you wanna, sometimes you get in the zone and you're like, I feel like I gotta do something, but what should I do? Um, and then you have your list. You could go to and say, I could do any one of these things. Um, when your focus hits, you have the list available, you pick it. Um, and then delegate tasks that you, that you're gonna plan for that to happen. So you're gonna say, okay, these tasks I can really only accomplish if I'm in that state. Um, for, so my example, I can't write unless I'm in that state. I mean, I can do emails or kind of technical writing, but creative you know, or you know, academic writing, my best writing happens when I'm in that state. And so I have a list of writing projects that I, I'm working on. And when I feel like really in the zone, I like open up my little spreadsheet and I know what I'm working on. And I pick up from my last kind of focus session. Um, and you're gonna save those high focus activities for those times. Um, don't try and accomplish them if you know that you really can't unless you're in that state, but like know that when you are, these are the things you're gonna do. Um, and then my last strategy um, is uh, automation. Um, and this can be done by kids themselves, by adults, or you could, teachers and parents, you can do this for kids. It's not, you're not, um, you know, it's called an accommodation. Uh, and it's a reasonable accommodation and it's something that um, you know, they can take with them into their adulthood, uh, legally speaking. Um, so uh, I think we sometimes, you know, want to hold kids to, you know, whatever standard, but we actually are, you know, cutting off our nose to spite our face. Um, so think of every little thing that kids have to do to do something you want. Um, is this essential to the outcome? Is this essential to my objective? Um, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that. Um, so think about the places where you can decrease friction and increase automation. Um, so some people like to have a uniform. Um, I, uh, have a more or less work uniform. I have the same shirt and five colors and the same pair of, uh, stretchy target pants, um, that I wear for work. Um, and I have the same thing in multiple colors. So that is something that I've kind of automated when I go on, uh, you know, a conference. It makes packing very easy. It's one less decision, right? We're trying to eliminate uh, decision fatigue and attentional fatigue. Um, the next would be print labels with the name and the class number and put them on papers ahead of time. Kids always forget in their names. They, writing their names takes too long. They forget it. They're annoyed by it. Have them, let them have a sheet of sticky labels that every time they get a thing, they put it on there. First of all, kids love stickers. Um, second of all, you're you're going to reduce like the, oh, i got to do that, you know. Um, anything that is, you know, unnecessary to the task at hand, why are we having kids copy sentence starters? I, there's, no, there's no point to that, right? If the point is for them to complete a sentence given a sentence starter, writing, writing it down, the sentence starter, is, does nothing for your objective. What tasks of all of the things are you asking are actually the essential ones towards the skill you're trying to teach and which ones are not essential where you could cut corners. Um, print um, on worksheets when the worksheet is relevant and when it can be discarded. Uh, this is huge. Kids do not know when to take things out of their notebook. I see kids with notebooks this thick. It's like two kinds of notebooks. 
like no notebook that's this thick because I have no idea when to take things out of the notebook um, or a notebook that has nothing in it because I lost all the papers. <laughs> um, so you can, as the teacher, say this is relevant for chapters eight, nine, and ten, and you know. Uh, when chapter 10 is done, this one can go, you know, be archived or go in the garbage or wherever it can go. Um, but we need to, um, instead of having kids go through their notebook and have to make an individual decision about every single piece of paper they're handed, um, which is one, not going to happen. Um, and two would take an, a tremendous amount of executive functioning. Um, you know, and executive functioning for a lot of people is something that we have a finite number of per day. Um, so uh, it's almost like, you know, people use a, the kind of spoon theory or, uh, you know, a cup. But if you have a cup, it starts this big. Every time you have to do a little menial task, it pours out just a little bit and it leaves less for the really important stuff. So anytime we can not pour out from the cup um, is, is, a, is a win because we want to save it for the stuff that is going to be, you know, worthwhile. Um, you can also, uh, for kids that are packing their own lunch or you're packing their lunch, you can pack the same lunch every day. Um, you know, kids get tired of it sometimes, but like, um, you know, automate your, your system um, or create like a weekly meals template where you're say every Monday we have pasta, every Tuesday we have chicken, whatever. Um, but that way when you go grocery shopping, you're almost just dragging and dropping things into these containers. So you're not like reinventing the wheel every time. Um, these are all things that, that, you know, help us to keep our cups relatively full so that when we do have to do a task that takes a lot of executive functioning, we have reserves. Um, so it's really about creating those, those strong reserves. Um, so my closing thoughts uh, in this are, you wanna make the systems work for your child and not the other way around. We keep creating systems and then um, the, the, they don't work well for the students or for the kids. And instead of changing the system, we then try and incentivize the system. Um, I created a system for you. And if you use it, I'll give you five gold stars, or I will um, give you an allowance, or I won't take away your iPad. Um, but if the system requires a heavy amount of incentivization for a child to use it, it's not a good system for them. Um, we need to stop trying to, um, you know, basically, you know, <laughs> carrot or stick our way, um, you know, into having kids use a system that is supposed to be for them. Um, if it's a good system, they'll carry it into their adulthood um, and they'll use it. And so if we have to say, if you use the system, if you don't use the system, you know, then it's, uh, it's really not working well for them. Um, and so we need to design a system that does work well for them. Um, so, uh, also, uh, neurodivergent folks get bored easily. Um, so don't be afraid to throw that system out, uh, for a time and get a new one. And then maybe the, that one can come back. Um, novelty can be a really, you know, motivating thing. I love like, you know, a new pack of pens and, you know, I get new pens and then I want to use my planner a lot. And then I switch to, to, to Doist for a little while. And then I go to Google calendar and that's not consistent. Um, but there are, you know, it, it, the novelty sometimes is is helpful. Um, and I always go back to the same four or five systems. Um, but, you know, those are the ones that work for me. But if I had one, I would just give up on it and not have any. So you want to have like kind of a couple to choose from. Um, and then also just folk, I'm really focused on working with the natural rhythms of neurodivergent people's existences. Um, you know, we're trying to, to make neurodivergent kids fit within a, uh, a system that works for neurotypical people. 
um, but not for them. And so that's what I'm really, uh, I find is really helpful. And then you have kids taking an ownership and saying, oh, I can do this. I can, you know, create a way for me to know where all, you know, most of my stuff is. Um, I can meet my goals because I have the, the tools to do so. Um, and then I'm not sure. I can't see my clocks. So I have no idea how long I've talked for. So hopefully it's not too long or too short. Um, but if you'd like to contact me, uh, you can uh, contact me at administrator at outteach.org. Uh, um, I also have a TikTok um, that I do, um, you know, autism outreach um, and education on uh, AUTeach or Outteach, um, like outreach, but teach. Um, and then I have a, a website where, uh, for my consulting work, if anyone is um, at all interested in that. So I will, um, Guy, I think I'm good. Excellent. We, we were just joining you on the screen. So um, th this, is, this is fantastic, uh, Robin. This is really, really amazing. And um, it's so nice to hear um, your your approach uh, on all of this. And I think you've offered people, and this was part of the goal of what we wanted to do here is we, we wanted to be able uh, to help others like us that may be struggling right now um, as we're we're becoming uh, teachers for our kids and we're, we're trying to help them, uh, kids that might be struggling with executive function. So this has really, really been fantastic. And I love that your approach is about, you know, accommodating the child, not the other way around. And, and you know, you had your, that was a great quote about kind of make systems work for your child, not the other way around. Unfortunately, all too often, the approach is the other way around. You, you, you brought up the example, I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was kind of like, um, you know, the solution to the problem shouldn't be the same as the problem. And, and that was a great point. That was we one did. of my favorites. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. <laughs> absolutely. So, so what we do have some questions starting to come in, and I'll bring those up, but also some comments as, uh, as we were going. And I'm going to bring up a, uh, a, a comment. I'm going to bring up a comment here real quick from from Jennifer Tidd, who is uh, part of our team at the Alliance and does all the amazing work that we have on our Facebook page and social media. And Jennifer says, 54-year-old ADHD here who wants her to come to my life and organize everything for me. <laughs> she said, would work for me a little. Um, you know, so, you know, the, these these things that you're talking about, and, and I think you brought this up, but I mean, you know, if, if you're finding accommodations that work for a kid, these are things that carry over into adult life. And, you know, your your sock bin, probably a, a good example of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent so much time being like, I'm if I just organize, if I just get it right, if I buy this book, if I, you know, put my shoes in bins or, you know, trying so hard to make these systems that I thought were the right ones and they just never worked. And finally I was like, maybe I'll just put a bin where I always drop my socks and that will be better. And it is a lot better. <laughs> Absolutely. Just like, oh, here, bin. <laughs> so before I go to another question, I know Beth had something. So Beth. Yeah, I had two things. One thing is that I, I really appreciated what you said about um, coming back in a week and looking, I can't remember which strategy that was, but I find that I organize. And then it's all a mess again. And then I organize. <laughs> so I have to come back to it. Um, yeah. Periodically. That can be and, part of the system, right? Like the system can be, I, you know, I start with a reset on Mondays and it gets progressively messier. And then on Sundays, I put it all back in place and the system is a week long system. I mean, that's a fine way to be like. Well, that's good because it feels like I'm such a, um, what do you call it? Someone who's really messy and disorganized. <laughs> Slob. 
<laughs> with all my papers and all that kind of stuff. The other thing I would, this was really great. Thank you so much. The other thing I wanted to mention is you said a word that may have tripped some people that I just wanted you to explain it to folks. And that was interoception. Oh, yeah. Some of our folks know it and some may not. Okay, cool. Um, so your sense of interoception uh, is one of your senses. It's your ability to know what's going on, to understand your internal states. Um, and a lot of times autistic and otherwise uh, neurodivergent folks have trouble with interoception where you may not register being thirsty or hungry or um, tired uh, or um, your internal sense of your feelings. Um, you know, sometimes uh, can be it could be a struggle. And so um, typically a lot of autistic folks I know struggle with interoception and have to, you know, set alarms to eat. Um, or uh, have to have someone kind of check, you know, if um, they're hot or cold in the house, um, because that kind of can miscommunicate with uh, their brain and tell them that things are fine when they're not, or that they're not fine when they are. Um, and so that's, you know, a big thing for, for folks to kind of keep in mind. Thank you. I'm going to bring up another question, but before I do, um, you know, one of the other points you brought up that I, I really resonated with me was just the approach of kind of the social model versus the medical model yeah. and not what's wrong with a child, but kind of how you, you can support. And um, that's a really important message. It sounds like an important part of your work. Yeah. I'm working on, you know, kind of like larger approach where I'm using um, these tenants to, um, you know, in a lot of different arenas, but uh, the idea is is to work with our kids for who they are, because um, always the intervention is for the kid uh, and not for the environment. And we need to be thinking much broader than that, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to bring up a question here from Beth. Uh, not not the same Beth. Uh, <laughs> suggestions for autistic teen who won't get rid of anything. Stuff sitting in his room and never used papers and school binder no longer needed, et cetera. So the stuff with the school binder, I'm wondering if he um, is like, has there been a situation where he threw something out and shouldn't have? Um, and like, so it might be kind of a like, like a fear-based response of like, what if I get rid of this and I need it again? Um, so I would say, you know, make sure that he, that the teachers are really clear in communicating exactly what he needs to keep because he may just be like, well, I'll keep everything because. Um, they may come, I may be in trouble, you know, or uh, kind of like that anxiety response. Um, the other thing that works really well for me is I take pictures of things that I need to get rid of. Um, because sometimes like, I just like the thing <laughs> I like it. Um, but it doesn't, um, you know, it's like something from a long time ago, but it's like clutter and I don't really need it, but I do love it. Um, and so you can like have him make a photo album of all of the things, you know, if you're going to get rid of a few things, um, you know, give him an option to say like, let's get rid of five things um, and I'll take pictures of them and we'll make like an album of like my favorite things or whatever. <laughs> um, but that way you're like, don't forget it ever existed. I'm always worried about that. Like, Oh, I'll forget that I had this sweater that I loved or, um, but then you can still keep that memory. Um, and mm -hmm. it's, still, it's still part of you, but it's not cluttering up your bedroom anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the expiration date idea that you gave earlier as yeah. well. And I almost yeah. wonder if like collaborating with the, the school staff and, and and using expiration dates on things or, or knowing generally that, you know, oh, well, he won't need to save this until after a certain date would kind of give the help give the child permission to feel like. Yeah, because you know. also teachers won't tell kids and they'll say, well, I don't know. And then it'll be like they'll they'll throw it out, and then it'll be like everyone pull out your 
know, chart from five months ago. And then you don't, you know, for those of us who have executive functioning issues, the, we've all sat in a class where we don't have the paper we're supposed to have. It's a horrible feeling. It happens all the time. We're very familiar with it. Um, I like failed entire classes because I just literally lost the entire notebook um, and was like too scared to tell someone that I lost all of the papers. Um, and so I would just sit in class and do nothing because I was like, uh, or pull out a random piece of paper and be like, yes, I have it. Um, but like, yeah. we all have that kind of like, it's like a little, you know, not a trauma, but like a, you know, experience, negative experience with that. And so he may be just like fearful of that happening because it is a terrible feeling and that we all kind of know really well. So I'm going to bring up another one here uh, real quickly, Beth, and we'll, we'll get to your yeah. uh, comment. Uh, Linda says, absolutely some of the best guidance in executive functioning uh, that I've seen. So uh, Robin, that's, that's great uh -huh. to hear. Uh, <laughs> and then kind of goes on to ask how we can get this to teachers, you know, general education, ESE, as well as behavior specialists to help them make the shift. So what are your recommendations in terms of trying to, um, you know, get this kind of guidance to others? So there is a ton of writing about the social model um, and you can, there's a lot of resources about uh, UDL, Universal Design for Learning, um, which is, um, you know, kind of a social model approach. And so there is like a, a, a nice research base for it. So if they're kind of swayed, you know, more by like an evidence base, um, which some people are, especially in this world of, you know, the evidence-based best practices, um, you can kind of bring that that to them. Uh, UDL it would be the kind of framework I think would have the most, you know, compelling research. Um, but then also, you know, sometimes asking questions like exactly like what I said, like, okay, well, he doesn't use it, <laughs> the system. Um, and how long should we do a system that is, who is this for, actually? Um, and kind of reframing it um, or say, let's just try it. Because I guarantee you, if you do it this way and not the other way, it's going to work better. And then you're going to, they're going to see it work better. Um, sometimes you kind of just have to be like, can you, can you just hear me out? Can you just try it and like see what happens? Um, and then, you know, most of the time, um, things work a lot better. And then you can say, you know, see, we had no major outbursts because he knew where all his papers were, you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, and then also like sharing resources. There's a ton of people, you know, that, uh, you know, disability studies scholars and kind of progressive special educators that have been doing this work for a long time. Um, and so, uh, you know, pointing them in that direction, just keep that dialogue open. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say in, in that vein too, sharing sharing this, you know. So yeah, share this. All, all, all of these are available after the words on on YouTube, and I highly encourage people to to share these with your with your teachers and with your um, you know um, other folks that are working with your children. Uh, you know, these these are designed for that. They're designed for parents. They're designed for educators. So please feel free to share these as well. Yes, thanks, guy. I'm a horrendous self promoter. Like I just like. I'm <laughs> horrible at it um it's like a miracle that like anyone knows who i am because i'm like scared to say it but also like i like this share this i also do like trainings and stuff so um if you my information you know i can share too if people want you know me to talk to their schools you know staff or something that's great that's great beth i know you had something a second ago yeah i was going to say i do think this is part of the mind shift that we're trying to do with people and i really appreciate everything you said today because I still think that people are still um, not just the teachers and parents, but kids kind of get it built in too sometimes is I should be able to do this. If I tried harder, I should be able to do this and he can do it. Why can't I do it? Uh -huh. And I think your, your approach, I love the, the social model. 
Um, I think that is all um, helps us understand that we all have different abilities in different areas. And you don't have, if you need a, I'll get to my PT things, if you need a crutch for something, you use a crutch. Um, that may not be the best example, but there's nothing wrong with having supports for areas that are more challenging so that you can put your awesome brain power on the things that you do well. And I love that you're talking about this because I don't think that's universally accepted. I think it's almost like everyone comes in with the same curriculum at school. And if you just keep teaching them and telling them the, the, the uh, solution to forgetting is to remember, then they had to get it. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so thank you. I think this is. I'm great. actually glad you said that because I do say that I, I get that a lot, which, you know, they'll use it as a crutch. And my response is always, well, crutches are good because if you mm -hmm. are disabled by your, you know, well, walk, right, that enables you to access the world in a way that you wouldn't should had you not had a crutch. Right? So, well, and yeah, exactly. And I'll say coming from my my first life was pediatric physical therapy and there was a big debate about whether we when do you let kids have a wheelchair and when do you put them in because they may not want to walk if you don't have a wheelchair well it's such a disservice um because you keep them from being mobile and getting around and doing stuff with other people it's not going to keep someone from doing the things they're able to do so yeah thank you and I also, also, oh sorry go ahead i also want you to explain what udl was Oh, sure. Okay. Um, I was just going to say it happens a lot with communication uh, systems also. I, mm -hmm. I love that your kids can't have them because then they won't talk. Uh, oh, oh, stop. First of all, like, you know, we have to stop central. I'm like, how? Okay, there we go. Um, we have to stop centralizing, you know, verbal speech is like the most important thing on earth. Um, but yeah. also, all of the research supports that that's not true. So um, <laughs> we withhold things from kids for these kind of like ableist norms um, when their lives could be dramatically improved by having them. Um, it mm -hmm. doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so UDL is a uh, framework, uh, universal design for learning. Um, I, I want to cite the right people so I can, um, I'm not exactly sure who, there's a lot of people that do it, so I don't want to um, just cite one over the other, but you can look it up. They have a whole website. Um, but it's a, the idea that um, it's starting with the idea of teaching everybody from the very beginning. Um, so it comes from the idea of universal design. So okay. of like building. So say um, you have a building uh, that has no ramp and you have to retrofit the building now with a ramp. It's extremely costly and disruptive, much more so than if you had built a building with a ramp to start. Um, and so it applies that concept to education. Um, so special education is often like there is a, you know, generally curriculum and the special educator modifies it. Right. And so the, the thing exists and we retrofit it um, for these kids. Um, but the idea of universal design is actually beginning uh, with the idea that you're teaching a diverse group of learners from the very beginning. Um, and that good pedagogy um, is not specific to individual children. Um, it's not like. Uh, you know, there's good pedagogy for special ed kids and good pedagogy for, uh, you know, non-disabled children. Um, but actually good teaching is reaching everybody through differentiation, through accommodation and modification from the onset. Um, it's in the planning. It's not after the fact. Um, and so that's what a lot of this stuff is, is really thinking about how can I set this up so that we don't have problems uh, as opposed to um, having a problem and then trying to retrofit a solution. 
Yeah, the great thing is that universal design principles can can benefit all all people and all users. You know, when done properly, you're you're doing something that's making it more accessible to everyone. Yeah, you know? I think about like you know captions or something. I love captions. I am a hearing person, and I love to have captions because sometimes I'm not paying attention and I can go read it. You know, um, it like these things are helpful. I do it in my college classes. I always tell them like if you need something that you don't get through the Office of Disability Services, you can't access for whatever reason. Let me know, and if it's feasible, I'll just offer it to everybody. Um, Okay, so let me get to a couple more comments here. Um, we, we've got a number that are rolling in, and uh, Jennifer mentions that you got started late, but she said, do you have suggestions for an ADHD parent of more than one autistic child? I love chaos, they need schedules. Any suggestions for homes with multi-neurodivergence? Oh yeah, this is, we know this one well in my house. Um, so uh, yeah, they call that, you know, competing access needs. Um, and so, um, you know, usually the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Um, one of the things that works really well um, is to have to schedule your unscheduled time. Um, so if you need three hours where you don't have to micro plan everything, then you can put on the schedule from one to three, uh, no plan. <laughs> um, that will satisfy uh, their need for a plan and your need for not a plan. Um, so you, you can create a schedule that has a great deal of like variability in it, but still is going to satisfy, you know, kind of sense of order for those who need it. Um, I used to put one in my, in my kindergarten class, I, my kids were like bad with surprises. So we would say every, we're going to have a surprise from 12, from, from 12 to 12, 15, not much of a surprise because it's coming at 12, uh, <laughs> it's less surprise than like, just there will, there will be a surprise. Um, but we would get used to having a surprise. Um, and that would be, you know, surprise snack, surprise, whatever. Um, but I would say like build a schedule that you can manage, um, but that also is going to, um, you know, have those things that you need actually built into the schedule. So you're making everybody kind of, you know, feel heard. I hope that makes sense. So this is related, and maybe maybe the answer is very similar. But what are ideas for managing multiple schedules um, and ratings by kids, such as in a classroom setting, or if they have to follow a set schedule um, of the school day that doesn't match their own ratings? Oh yeah, okay. So there's a couple different like curriculums that already do this. I don't know if uh, you do Daily Five or if you've heard of that, um, but basically what you can do is during your, say you have a subject period, you're going to do reading um, and you have, you know, five different activities. This is daily five um, or you can adapt it. Um, say you have like five things you want them to do. Um, you can give them a checklist and say, you need to do these five things during this period. So the whole day is not a free for all, um, but you have, you know, you can plan um, and you have, you know, this amount of time to do all of them. If they're older, they may be able to handle, like you need to finish all of these by the end of the period. The little ones, you might have to say, you know, break it up for them. We're going to do, you know, rotation centers, that kind of stuff. Um, there's also um, teach out of UNC. If you're working with, um, you know, neurodivergent kids um, is, is kind of the gold standard of managing multiple schedules at one time. Um, so if you can get uh, certified in teach, I would highly recommend it. It's still something I go back to over and over and over again. Um, but it, that is a, a kind of complex schedule system. Sometimes you have to work out like almost like a matrix ahead of time, but you can actually, um, you know, uh, do it that way where if you're telling them what, where that, what, what they're kind of varied schedule is going to be, um, or you can have them pick the activities, um, and, or rotate. 
um, are, are ways that you can kind of do multiple at once. Um, it's basically just getting away from that whole class instruction because that's going to be the killer of it. Uh, yeah, and another great comment from Linda. I, I wish I could make these videos a requirement in the IEP. Uh, <laughs> could it agree more? Um, yeah, it's, I think it's really helpful. Um, and, and, you know, so much of this is, um, you know, I think that, that many of us as parents uh, find that the approaches that are happening out in the trenches are, are the ones that you described and not in good examples, you know, um, where it's like, well, we're, we're going to make you have a plan to, to be planned, you know, to, to get over your planning deficit or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, so so definitely there's a need for this. And, and I think, you know, uh, really, really appreciate you sharing all this today. I'm going to share another comment here. And I think this is an important one. Another one from Jennifer, but she said, you know, basically that until recently, she felt that all her executive function deficits were character flaws mm-hmm. and was very ashamed of it. And I think that really underscores the importance of, of getting the right accommodations for the children that need them and, and having things that can extend beyond their school to, to support them throughout their lives. Any, any thoughts? I mean, I wish I wish I this was not the case, but oftentimes when I go to schools and I can see kids immediately, I, I can just pick, pick them out. They're struggling with executive functioning. Um, and it always goes back to noncompliance. Um, oh, he just doesn't want to do his work. Right, right. Um, he's lazy. Um, you know, like really, uh, you know, kind of character flaw attacks. Um, and I can see that this poor kid wants to start and like literally just doesn't know how to get the crayons because they're far away and like probably in the bottom of his backpack. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think we get a lot of that from, from school. I remember when I was a kid, I, my desk was always a mask. Um, and a teacher would go and dump the desk on the ground, mm. clean it up in front of the whole class while I cried. Um, Instead of, you know, and then it would be like, next time, don't make your desk a mess. Well, guess what? It would get messy again. It would happen over and over again. Um, and, and no one, you know, helped me um, with how to organize my desk. It was, I was, you know, 30 years old before I figured out a system to organize my desk. I think that it's, it reminds me of what happens for people who have um, depression is that other people can't get the feel of what it's like. Yeah. until they get depressed themselves mm. and so i think a lot there's a de- there's a lack of empathy for the kids maybe it's not empathy maybe it's just a block in the brain of people who don't have the same struggles to believe that there's this deficit that's keeping them from doing it um and i that's one of the reasons i like um the work that's being done with neuroscience and trying right. to get that information um in all the schools so that there's this blaming gets stopped it's so harmful. Yeah. So thank you. So I want to bring one up from uh, Pamela here. Uh, is there uh, UDL specific uh, to uh, executive function strategies? So one challenge is that students have five or more teachers who are using a different system, for example, communicate, communicating assignments. Uh, they can use a syllabus, a calendar right on the board or verbal, et cetera. It takes my son until February every year to learn all the different systems. So the lack of consistency I guess, between all the different staff working with the student. So as far as I know, like UDL, you know, home home base does not put out a specific, um, you know, executive functioning like model. But if you go through there, um, they have a really nice document that has like a ton of lists of accommodations that you could, and, and it has them organized by different types of domains. Um, there are a lot of suggestions in there. Um, it's in there. They have it on their website. It's a PDF. Um, so you could look through that. 
Um, you could also make it an accommodation in the IEP that they transpose whatever they're doing into a uniform system. Um, you know, if they're going to use like different like learning management systems, um, then, you know, you may want to have them have to, um, you know, put it all in like a singular one or use a, a you know, a consistent format. Um, you know, I find that very difficult. I struggle with online classes for that reason, because it's, there's no clear like structure. Um, and so it would be helpful, you know, it's helpful if it's, you know, the same. Um, so I would use the IEP if you can't get them on the same page. So speaking of the IEP, uh, Linda asks, do you recommend executive function goals in an IEP? I do, but I I, um, I like the IEP with the disclaimer. So um, you want to have the under what circumstances be the dependent clause in the beginning. So using a blah, 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 you know, um, using the technique of, you know, anything I just listed, so-and-so will, you know, turn in homework five days a week, you know with 80% accuracy or blah, blah, blah. Um, you wanted, so I see them without the clause. It doesn't say how they're gonna do it. And so what happens then is that people see it in isolation and they think that they should just use a, like a, a you know, behavior chart to make them do it. Um, it doesn't show the how. Um, so if you're gonna use executive functioning goals, which I think are fine, um, you should really have the use of the accommodation is actually the goal. Gotcha. Gotcha. The goal, not have, the goal isn't don't have executive functioning problems anymore. The goal is um, have a system that you use consistently. Mm-hmm. So, so back to something you said earlier when you talked about um, kind of how um, the solutions aren't really solutions. Um, one of the things that I've seen as a parent and, and heard from a lot of other parents is it's that kind of situation that leads to the frustration of a child because they're now faced with not being able to solve a problem in front of them. So they're overwhelmed. They can't, they can't deal with it. And invariably at that point, um, you know, one of the things that happens is the demands increase on the child. So, you know, you have a solution that's not working, the demand increases. And, and that's a lot of what leads to escalations that may lead to a kid shutting down or eloping or, or acting out. And ultimately in, in, you know, the, you know, area that we look at heavily with restraint seclusion, a lot of things are, are, you know, kind of led into by, you know, maybe it's an executive function skill that ultimately kind of turns into more. So obviously the solution is properly accommodating the child and, and having real solutions, but are there other strategies or tactics that you recommend for people to avoid that, to, to, you know, if things are, are not working out, you know, how would you help them to get things back under control? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times I do trainings for, for, uh, about restraint and seclusion. Um, and I, you know, the, the teachers want to know, well, if not, then what? Um, right. and that's, you know, that's right. the yeah. question. Um, I think, you know, we tend to think about behavior outbursts as just kind of like, um, you know, like a firework, it just goes off, like randomly, you can't tell when it's going to happen. And, you know, it's unpredictable. Um, And typically, that's not actually what happens, right? What happens is behavior follows a kind of like bell curve, um, where we're getting more escalated, we're getting more escalated, we're getting more escalated. And now we're having an outburst. And now it's coming down. Um, What people don't really understand is that you can turn the car around, any way up, <laughs> on, you know, you're on your way up, you could easily go back down. 
the closer you are to the ground, the easier to get back down. Mm -hmm. um, and so what happens is people miss those cues, right? So everyone's cues are different. I've never seen a kid who just literally explodes out of nowhere. There's always something that happens before. Um, and I think that we get in our heads about not reinforcing their behavior, or like not giving in. Um, and so instead of de-escalating, we escalate because we hold the demand or hold them accountable or, or whatever language we want to use, right? And we push them right up that hill. <laughs> and so, you know, I am of the mind that, you know, these are crisis situations, um, and should be treated as such. And so we want to triage. Um, the analysis, you know, the analogy I use is, you know, when someone overdoses on heroin, we don't lecture them about addiction when they're, you know, we give them Narcan so they don't have an overdose. Um, that's, you know, and then we, we talk about the other things after, you know. So you can talk to a child when they're on either side on the ground, but talking in this part is going to make it worse. Um, so I always tell the teachers, think of it like a seesaw. If they're at a 10, you're at a one. Uh, if they're you know, at a five, you can be at a five, um, but it has to add to 10 every time. Um, and so what a lot of teachers do is the kids go to 10, they go to 11. <laughs> so they try and like win, <laughs> um, but you're not gonna win by doing that. So um, the, the more calm you can be um, and don't worry about as much the like, you know, giving in, you can process that out with them later. Um, you know, I, I really wanted to keep you safe. And so we did this. And so now this is what we're going to do in the future. Um, but you always want to go back to that unmet need. Um, mm -hmm. There always is one. Mm -hmm. All right. That's great. So, um, Beth, you always have a final question and we're, we're getting towards the end here. So I'm going to give you the cue for your final question. Uh, but but a couple more uh, comments here. Um, you know, Jennifer had a, another really good one just talking about the need to eliminate all the, you know, the neurodiverse and shame words out there. You know, lazy, noncompliant, violent, you know, um, lacking empathy. And that very often happens happens to kids that have executive uh, function challenges um, that, you know, um, again, we're, we're attributing their, you know, their whatever may be happening to um, to these things that just clearly aren't necessarily the case. It, it's a, you know, I, I mean, I, I see a kid that's getting restrained or secluded and often it goes back to what what need did they have that wasn't being appropriately accommodated and executive function is such a huge place for that. Uh, let's see if we have any other comments here. Uh, uh, Jess says she loved the uh, seesaw analogy. Uh, yeah, that, that's a really good one, thinking about kind of that escalation. And um, let's see, uh, we had another one here from Jennifer about, you know, no such thing as random behavior. And, and a lot of us as parents have, have heard about that. But, you know, if you really go back and uh, play detective, you often find that there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes. So this has been really, really fantastic. And, um, you know, the the um, the bad part about that for you is we're going to we're going to need you to come back and, and do more. Uh, <laughs> okay. this is really, really great. And I think, you know, for for parents, for educators, uh, you know, the more we can understand and, and meet people's needs um, and, and help them be successful you know, versus putting demands that just push things um, into, uh, you know, a bad area. So thank you so much, Beth. Uh, did you have any final questions before we um, it's wrap not up? A, it's not a question, but it's a comment. And All I right. think that what, <laughs> what we see is um, what you're asking is that kids, kids be respected, kids and adults be respected for where they are, which I so 100% support and appreciate you saying that. And how, however, we can do this with our teachers, again, respecting them where they are, but helping them see. And I loved your analogy about the, um, the Narcan, is that 
we need to see our kids, um, see them where they are, recognize their strengths. And you gave such great um, suggestions for how to do that and how to work with uh, parents and teachers. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Robin. Thank you so much. I've got a couple quick announcements, but thank you again, Robin. I'm going to take over with a couple announcements and uh, tell folks about what we have uh, here coming up. Um, so thank you, everybody that joined us today. This has been a really great session. Again, I absolutely want to encourage you to to share these uh, with your your teachers. Well, let's put it this way. If you're if you're a parent, share these with your teachers and staff. If you're a teacher, because we know we have a lot of uh, educators in our audience as well share them with parents that are going to benefit. I mean, this is a two-way street and we can we can benefit each other when we start doing better things. And speaking of better things, um, we've got more great things coming uh, in the coming weeks. We've got, uh, we're going to be moving into June soon and moving into June, we're going to be moving to every other week for our Facebook Live sessions. Um, but we're going to be kicking off June really with a, a, great, um, a great speaker, Dr. Lori DeSaltis. Uh, who's going to be talking about how our brains learn, feel, behave, and socialize when there is adversity and trauma. And this is so critical as we look at the world today with the, the COVID-19 virus, and we think about the world as, as kids are going to be going back to school. It's going to be really important to understand neuroscience and brain development, uh, and, and this is really going to be a great one for educators as well. So we've got a lot more uh, great uh, you know presentations lined up in the coming months. I think we're, we're booked until... I want to say September. So uh, we've got a lot of great stuff planned. And I want to thank everybody for joining us. And uh, we will see you again uh, next, uh, actually, actually on the second and um, look forward to it. So thank you everyone again and uh, stay tuned for more.